Hello friends, I hope you are enjoying some happy and restful holidays, and I thank you for spending a small part of them with me and a dozen or so of the most noteworthy new music releases from July of 1983. We have got, I say it every time, but it's really true this time, we have got some absolute bangers to talk about, you and I. But beyond that, as you know, I'm a crazy person, and every time I do this, I do another pod with all the other stuff that didn't quite make the cut for this pod. There is so much of that stuff. I put together all the stuff that didn't make the big show for July and August of 1983. I've got, friends, I've got 25 albums I'm dying to talk to you about exclusively at my Patreon. Here's the deal. Did you know I do a, a, a seven-day free trial? There's like no obligation. Not only can you hear that show, you can hear everything else that I've done for the holiday season, everything that I've done on my Patreon. There is a lot of it for the last couple of years. So come for the, uh, the best of July and August 1983. New music release, uh, best of the rest. Did I already say that? And then stay for everything else. Check it out. Free seven-day trial at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, Coming to you live. On tape from a crowded and boisterous and hopefully not super noisy house in rapidly gentrifying Culver City, adjacent California, boasting a partially obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign. You can kind of see, like, how this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully, back to take a, a fairly deep dive on the noteworthy new releases, new music releases of, what are we talking about? July 1983. As I already mentioned in the, the pre-roll here, as they're called in the biz, if you want to, you want the real deep cuts, um, this is just the, the tip of the iceberg. We will be talking about 13, I think, indisputably noteworthy music releases that all came out in one single month. Uh, a little over 40 years ago. And then on the bonus post show, we'll talk about a whopping 18 more. So first of all, let's talk. About, so it's just, it's, it's, it's all happening here. Uh, the, the wife is working from home. She's got a coworker coming by. Oh, great. The kids are the same age. Bring the kids too. Uh, and then there, uh, we got a roof leak and we also have a washer, no, a dryer that's not functioning the way it's, well, it's not drying. So I got, uh, a repairman, a, a wife, a coworker, a child, a burn it doodle and two other children coming by but don't worry they're not i swear to god i'm confident you're not going to hear them at all they're not going to disturb our fun as we uh, talk about all this music most of which you will probably remember some of which you might be pleasantly surprised to learn about let's take a quick look at the the music news that was happening <clears throat> july of 93 simon and uh, paul simon's solo music career was going so well, and Art Garfunkel's film career, and look it up, he did have one, was going so well that um, they had no choice but to swallow their pride despite um, their open loathing of one another 
um, to reunite and do a uh, a well-received, widely celebrated reunion tour across North America. This is um, before, obviously, Paul Simon made his big comeback with the Graceland album and before Art Garfunkel lost what remained of his hair and faded into utter irrelevance in uh, on July 21st. I want to say that that, um, that Simon and Garfunkel North American tour featured the show at Central Park, New York City Central Park, which was at least at the time considered. I mean, nobody actually, you know, counted the heads properly, but it, it was it was guesstimated that there were 500,000 people there and that either is or was a record for like the biggest concert for just one band ever. There was another noteworthy show in um, in Central Park in July of 1983, Diana Ross did, you know, well into her solo career at that point, did a show and there was this like uncharacteristic uh, torrential downpour in, in late July. I suppose it's not that uncharacteristic on the East Coast. And uh, I think she 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 started the show and then it started pouring on her and she went through this whole over the top diva. The rain's not going to slow me down. And then uh, I think the rain ultimately did. And I think they told her she was going to get electrocuted. And so uh, she left the stage and I think came back and did another show the next day or something like that. I know when I was a child and I was a big New York Yankees fan, whenever there was a rain delay, they had like, th- man, you kids, if there's any children listening to this, I don't know what you're doing here, but you really don't know how good you have it nowadays when it went to a rain delay. I felt like the 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 New York Yankees, WPIX Channel Eleven, the Eleven, the New York uh, local station that that aired the Yankees games, had a very had a very small number of cards to play to kill time in a rain delay. After Phil Rizzuto, you may recall the the famous uh, Yankees Hall of Fame baseball player and probably even more famous uh, crackpot local TV baseball announcer, New York's answer to uh, Chicago Cubs announcer Harry Carey. After Phil Rizzuto got tired of talking out of his ass about cannolis, then they would put on the the footage of this Diana Ross performing in a torrential downpour in uh, in in Central Park concert footage. So I I've seen the start of it a million times. I've never actually watched it all the way through. Frankly, not really feeling too bad about that decision. Also on July 29th of 1983, maybe it doesn't matter to you, but as a kid who had already lost cable because my parents caught my sister and I watching Porky's on HBO for probably the 50th time that we had seen that movie, my parents decided it was bad for our moral fortitude and probably also wanted to save a few bucks. So they got rid of cable for about 10 of my formative years. And so while all the rest of you were watching, were taking MTV for granted on a 24-7 basis, I had to, I had to watch videos when I could get them at a friend's house. And the rest of the time I had to uh, to rely on Friday night videos. Remember that? Was, which was broadcast for the first time on NBC. Network TV's answer to MTV one hour of uh, not very popular music videos airing, at least in my market, about 1 a.m. on Friday nights. That debuted on July 29th, 1983. But hey, let's talk about the music because I think, you know, I like to lead this show with, naturally enough, what I consider the biggest, the most historic, the most noteworthy new release of the month we're talking about in July of 1983, probably 
the most successful metal band of all time, probably the most popular metal band of all time, uh, with all due respect to Black Sabbath, maybe the most influential metal band of all time, forget metal, one of the most successful and influential rock bands of all time debuted and yet and if you have a guess as to who i'm talking about you are almost definitely right but it's metallica i mean let's let's be real here metallica had released their first album in july of 1983 and yet i think you could go either way and you can feel free to disagree with me i think if you want to talk about the the uh, landmark release out of the big stuff that came out this month you have to give the nod to the self-titled debut album from Madonna. So, you know, her backstory is fairly legendary at this point. She moved to New York City. She posed for a couple of nudes. She was out there. She was moving. She was shaking. I think when it comes to, um, to like to rock bands, the typical story that we have of them, at least in the in the the creation myth in the pre-internet age, was these bands that were out there scrapping and begging to get some stage time in this little grimy club. And then when we think about pop acts, which is usually, you know, pop, dance, or some combination of the two, we think of it as being a much less grimy road. You know, picture like a Mariah Carey. I, I, I'm not exactly sure how Mariah Carey came on the uh, the radar of Tommy Mottola, the, the big record exec that she worked with, you know, signed with and later married. But it, it just seems like the person, they get a bunch of vocal training, they they make a couple of demo tapes, they send them to the label, and they never really have to get any dirt under their fingernails. Now, we know that's that was that's not the case for a lot of pop singers, I'm sure, but it was definitely not the case for Madonna. It's a pretty, like, in, in a parallel universe, she, she wanted to be the biggest star in the world, obviously. She succeeded in, in doing that. But, you know, if... I think her spirit is 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 more in line with like the punk rock ethos of you know her her spirit was very neatly divided between what was happening in downtown New York in late seventies and early eighties and what was happening in Midtown downtown being the punk Midtown being you know the dance stuff but she was out there she was moving and shaking and she's recording demo tapes wherever she can and she's going and literally knocking on the doors of of clubs and just trying to get the DJ there play my song and 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 you know scrapping however she can i don't think it's shocking that um you know she famously once she got really huge later in the 80s did a tour with and selected the beastie boys instead of a more comparable pop act to herself as the opening act because you know they're from new york they may have rubbed shoulders before um fame but i think in spirit the person she was pre-fame was like comfortable hanging out with rock people was comfortable hanging out with hip with hip-hop people she just wanted to be huge and the road to being huge really always has been the most direct road is to make cheesy pop music. So that is what she did. She puts out this album. They release a single or two in, in under different circumstances. Cause the first, I think two singles didn't really do anything. The label might have given up on her, but um, she was a worker and the label themselves said, we, we kind of saw that this chick was willing to do absolutely anything to be a star. And when we knew that she was willing to put in all the work to do every single thing that we asked her was in it for the long haul, it made us want to stick with the project and see if we couldn't get it off the ground. And so single one doesn't do much. Single two doesn't do much. But then there's there's th this is pretty unusual for a debut album. They put out five singles 
and the last three hit one bigger than the next. And it's kind of interesting to me that, so Madonna's second album is Like a Virgin. And at that point, you know, I'm sure from the, as soon as MTV started, she was, as well as anybody understood the potential of MTV for star making and for marketing and for selling records. But starting from the second album, there was always the shtick that, you know, when she wrote the song Like a Virgin, you could, she probably could, was already seeing the music. What, what am I going to wear in it? What's the music video going to look like? And that would be the case for the rest of her gigantic run. You know, Like a Prayer was, that song is basically a soundtrack for a music video. Ditto, Express Yourself. But this album, she didn't have like, you know, uh, so many of her biggest hits, the songs double as like slogans. Express Yourself and, uh, you know, Like a Virgin. She didn't have the the sloganeering yet. She didn't have the the visual hook to match the musical hook. What she really just had was her natural charisma and, you know, some fairly catchy songs. And it, it worked well enough that she sold five million albums. The point has been made many times that for such a successful musician, Madonna hasn't really made very much great music. And I would tend to agree with that. Personally, I I would choose to listen to at most six or seven Madonna songs. But something that, that I've noticed is the stuff that w when Madonna was trying the hardest, when it was justify my love, I'm going to make this song and I'm going to make a music video and it's going to be borderline pornographic and it's, and it's, it's going to get banned everywhere and people are going to pay attention to me. When, uh, you know, this the song's already mentioned, Like a Virgin, Express Yourself. Those, it's like, it's easy to see why they were successful. They didn't really do anything for me. My personal favorite Madonna is uh, the stuff that we don't think of, first of all, w when we think of of her, which is her not trying so hard, really just indulging in simple, sweet, straightforward pop. And uh, my favorite song from the self-titled debut album from Madonna is a perfect example of that. On July 27th of 1983, Madonna released that self-titled album. Two short days earlier to far less fanfare, Metallica released their debut, Kill 'Em All. Now, Madonna, as I mentioned, ultimately sold 5 million copies of, uh, of, of, of the album, Madonna. Metallica, on the other end of the spectrum, moved about 60,000 copies of Kill 'Em All. Unless you were playing, uh, paying very close attention to the metal underground in those days, you probably did not notice it happening at all. The album uh, didn't even enter the Billboard charts until Metallica released Master of Puppets, and that was so successful. It lifted the, uh, the earlier discography, the earlier catalog, to platinum success as well. Now, Metallica had only been around for two years when they released this album, but a lot had happened in those two years. We all know the stories. Dave Mustaine's in the band. They figure out that Dave Mustaine is Dave Mustaine. They kick him out. They get Kirk Hammett, who had been in Exodus, a band who would go on to have a very respectable run in their own right. The band uh, goes what goes to New York to sign the record deal, doubles back to LA, goes up to San Francisco, 
because Cliff Burton will only join the band if they come to him. But eventually it all comes together. They get about $25,000, uh, I think in today's money, maybe even been less than that, in, in 83 to go into a studio and to crank out one of the legendary debuts. Now, I think I'm a guy who listens to a fuck ton of Metallica these days, particularly the first three, four, five albums. My son is super obsessed, and the the difference is fairly jarring. Two things. First of all, as they got more success, they got a bigger budget. So much of what makes Metallica great is is it's the songs, but it's the sound, the production on those classic albums. This first album, uh, for better and for worse, really just sounds like, uh, I don't want to say a glorified garage recording. It's far better than that, but it's just straightforward. Turn the amps up, put the mics on it, and this is probably a lot like what the the band sounded like live in those days. Obviously, James Hetfield's voice also evolved quite a bit. I wouldn't say it was quite shrieky in the beginning, but he was more living in his high register before he found the more comfortable and familiar sound um, that, that we would associate him with from Master of Puppets. Onward, And it's interesting as a guy who listens to a lot of Metallica these days, if you go on uh, even like just the streaming services like Spotify, they have all the stuff from all the boxed sets that have been released over um, all these years. You can find demos literally of songs from Master of Puppets, of the song Master of Puppets, where James is still doing that shriekier high register thing. I'm not sure exactly where it happens. Some producer must have made the suggestion because they were prepared to keep his voice sounding like that. Um, And it would radically change what um, Master of Puppets and, you know, Injustice for All and Enter Sandman would have sounded like. I think probably would have kept them from being so successful. But this is the early, young, super energy still with a little bit of a punk edge, I think you'd have to say, Metallica. Now, it's interesting to me, how many times have I joked in in doing this pod about all of the metal bands to this point would write, you know, the, the name of the album would have the word metal in the title and the main song would, it was just metal bands who did metal songs about the glory of metal. This is as good as a, a dividing line, I think, as you're going to find of Metallica made that. I mean, that stuff was always very cheesy. We know that. But Metallica made that stuff look really embarrassing kind of overnight. And I think this is when metal moves into its more mature and less ludicrous phase. And, you know, I found it interesting over the years as I've learned more about Metallica's influences. And they've never been shy about telling people the bands they listen to, they've covered a bunch of bands that uh, influence them. You hear bands like like Budgie and Diamond Head and, and Merciful Fate. And once you've heard Metallica, you can go back and listen to those bands and go, oh, they're almost doing the same thing. But it seems like, and I don't mean this to slight Metallica in any way. They're, in any way, they're absolutely amazing. They deserve all the credit that they get. But it sometimes seems to me that their genius above all else, was in looking at all the metal bands that had come before them and figuring out what was what was great about those bands and what was what, what should be laid by the wayside. And it's just this very streamlined version of, of, of what made metal and what could make thrash metal a, a viable form of music that, you know, it's still still going very, very strong to this day. Pretty much every song on the first few Metallica albums is a classic, so I just got to pick one to play. So I'm gonna pick this song, which is still, you know, the staple of their live set to these to this day. Mm-hmm. 
next up, let's take a look at two enormous names from the 60s and 70s who were uh, struggling to remain relevant in the 80s, both of whom, to their credit, were, um, were I wouldn't say unable, unwilling to try to go back to the things that had made them famous in the first place. Um, Robert Plant has had a kind of a weirdly undistinguished solo career. Well, that's not exactly true anymore, is it? After Led Zeppelin, uh, he was so tailor-made for hair metal stardom. You know, I mean, Kiss was able to transition into that stuff fairly easily. Uh, You know, all the hair metal bands were super influenced by Led Zeppelin and Kiss and Aerosmith. And that's pretty much the list. And, you know, Aerosmith was able to imitate those bands imitating them. Kiss was able to do the same. Robert, I mean, half the singers in hair metal were not even trying to hide the fact that they were just doing Robert Plant impressions. Mark Slaughter of Slaughter, Jack Russell from Great White. I mean, the list goes on and on. But Robert Plant, not only would he not really play the hair metal, he did later on in the 80s, I know a little bit, but like, not only would he not fully embrace that game, he wouldn't even make stuff that sounded exactly like Zeppelin. And it didn't work, but I mean, more power to the guy. He released his second solo album in July of 83 that's called The Principle of Moments, and I have not verified this for myself, but a a, a listener of this show informs me that in the music video for this song, Robert Plant is in a hot tub, and you can clearly see fart bubbles. So there you go. In my considered opinion, that's really not that bad. It's also really not that good. It just kind of, it kind of is Robert Plant doing whatever Robert Plant felt like doing in July of 83, which is exactly what Neil Young was doing and had been doing for a minute. Now, if memory serves, I think I'm sure we talked about this on the show, Neil Young was, was like so many of these artists, it seems they had just dominated late 60s through the 70s. And um, although in retrospect, the writing was on the wall for most of them as you know commercially viable forces, so many of them, I think the labels were just making so much money. They had these huge checks to wave around. And I think the label looks at their roster like a stock portfolio. It's like, you want to have you you, you got to place some bets on up and comers that could be the next Madonna, for example, the next Metallica. But you also want to have your blue chips. You want to have your steady earners. You want to say these people have been selling records for 10, 12 years. They'll probably keep selling records and they'll go out to dinner with me and hang out with me and make me look cool when they come to town. The problem with Neil Young is, you know, he's always been known for restless experimentation. This album is acoustic and this album's got a bunch of feedback and it's with Crazy Horse. But that the the experimentation thing went to a whole other wild level in the 80s. And I want to say he had right. He had just signed a deal for like a lot of money. Yes. No, I know we talked about this. And and the label was like part of the deal was complete artistic freedom. 
And uh, he took total advantage of that. You know, we talked about the album uh, Trans that he made, which was his son with cerebral palsy. And he's spending all this time in hospital rooms around all the beeping, chirping uh, medical equipment. It inspires him to ask himself, what would a Neil Young album sound like if Neil Young was a robot? And um, the label's like, okay, okay. You got that out of your system. Now, now, what do you got for us? And he would get there eventually. Like Harvest Moon was a was a, an album that was both good and great, and you know got awards and sold a ton of copies. And I guess that's the late '80s. But here in '83, he pivots from uh, from trans into a rockabilly album. It's the shortest album he's ever made. It's 25 minutes long. He made up a band called the shocking pinks it was just a totally made up studio concoction uh so he he, he puts on a suit and kind of looks like i don't know uh jimmy hart the mouth of the south he's got this pink suit on and all of a sudden here's neil young and the shocking pinks with an album called everybody's rockin I will say his his voice it it suits that style suits his voice uh, to a T and I wouldn't have necessarily guessed that it would but uh, yeah it, it it came and it went and it didn't sell too many copies and the people at Geffen Records I'm sure got very very mad at him and then moved on with their lives and uh, I don't know if there were still malt shops in 1983 but if there were um, they had a, a terrific new album to spin while girls went around, went around on roller skates bringing people milkshakes. Meanwhile, on July, I think, 5th, 1983, one of the landmark releases in the history of punk rock, at least in relation to uh, punk rock breaking through to the mainstream, I'm speaking of the debut album from Suicidal Tendencies, which features probably to this day their most popular and well-known song, Institutionalized, which was also one of the very few punk rock songs that got any traction whatsoever on MTV. And it's fairly easy to see why. Uh, usually when you talk about, you know, punk rock or anything crossing over, it implies a certain kind of watering down, a certain amount of selling out. I don't think anybody has ever accused suicidal tendencies of that. I think institutionalized was the song of suicidal frontman Mike Muir's teenage soul. And it just happened to speak to um, to to a lot of uh, to, to to the general zeitgeist of of eighties slackerdom. Suicidal to me have always been um, musically most interesting because they just totally blur the line between um, punk rock and metal. And they did their they are a punk rock band, but they play metal guitar, and that's just the way that it is. And when you look forward to the the the, the Southern California punk rock um, that would you know, become popular in the early nineties. I can name any number of bands, but I'm thinking of like no effects here, just full on metal guitars. And, you know, there was a time when most of us listening to this will remember where it was like punk was over here with shitty, uh, uh, overdriven guitar tones and metal was over here with like palm muting and leads. And like, you know, to be good at your instrument was, uh, made you not punk rock enough. And then all of a sudden, you know, you had the no effects giving way to the blinks and stuff where they could, 
you know, they weren't virtuosos, but they could really, really play their instrument in a metal style. The first, maybe there was more of that in hardcore punk than I'm aware of, but the, the first band that I can think of that was definitely embracing a metal guitar sound in a, in a clearly punk context was, uh, was suicidal. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. I think I knew that I was old when I re-listened to this song and I found myself totally siding with the, uh, the mother character of the song. Like what it, get your own goddamn Pepsi. I go, no, I don't want to, I'm okay. I'll figure it out myself. They just keep bugging me. They just keep bugging me. There's pills on the side. It's got to be a suicide. So come afraid with one side. You will laugh and say, I'm afraid what you can see away. I'm not crazy. On July 1st, 1983, Circle Jerks released their third studio album, Golden Shower of Hits. See what they did there? Um, the band still featured uh, Keith Morris on vocals at this point, still featured Greg Hetson, who would later join Bad Religion. I'm far from an expert on this sort of thing, but I gather the consensus is this completes the uh, the golden trilogy of the classic Circle Jerk sound before they moved in other artistic directions. And um, the album Golden Shower of Hits featured Circle Jerk's classics, such as this one right here. On July 29th, 1983, Scottish band Big Country released their debut album, which would, I, I have a mild fascination with the, as a general rule of thumb, if um, a band's biggest song is, has the same name as the name of the band, that, that will probably be the band's only hit. And I could think of a couple of examples, but the the, prototy- the prototypical example is um, is Big Country. And you, you, I'm sure you remember the song of the same name. They were from Scotland, and boy, were they Scottish. Their guitar player figured out a way to uh, put some effects on his guitar to give them a sort of bagpipe effect, which you, you probably you may not have noticed it before. You'll never not hear it again once we play the sample of the song produced by Steve Lillywhite, one of the go-to 80s guys for music of this nature. Uh, I mean, obviously most um, prominently associated with U2, but also Psychedelic Furs. He was, I don't know who takes how much credit for this, but he was the producer on the, I think it was, was it a Peter Gabriel album that Phil Collins was drumming on where they stumbled on the famous gated reverb snare drum sound that would um, define like when you think of the prototypical 80s production sound, you're, half of what you're thinking of is just that. That is in part Steve Lillywhite. Anyway, Big Country has uh, one, exactly one song that you've probably ever heard. I think it's a pretty good song. And here it is. I'm not expecting to grow flowers in a desert, but I can look and breathe and see the sun in a winter time. In a big country dream, stay with you like a lover's voice far from mountainside. 
Speaking of one-hit wonders, on July 1st, 1983, Matthew Wilder, you may not recognize or remember the name, released a debut album that would feature his single hit. It went all the way to number five on the Billboard chart. It is not a very good song. If you wanted to argue that it is a pretty bad song, I would probably uh, agree with you. I, uh, I don't know what nationality I thought Matthew Wilder was or where I thought he was from. But I, when I saw the picture, I was definitely not expecting a, a very pale blonde haired white dude, nor was I expecting to learn that the guy who sang this song was born and raised in New York city. Paul Young is a household name in the UK. He was on the Band-Aid, Do We Know It's Christmas song. He played it Live Aid. His debut album went quadruple platinum in England, which is actually, it says here, only 1.2 million copies. But still, it's a pretty small country. He was uh, one of the leading lights in the blue-eyed soul movement over there. Obviously, his success never extended stateside. But if you like 80s stuff, and if you're listening to this pod, there's a decent chance that you do. Uh, you, you may or may not, depending on how deep you go, you may or may not have heard this song or remember this song. To me, this emerges as uh, one of the, 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 the truly great non-hits um, from the 80s. Don't wait any As you may or may not recall, a couple years back, we talked about the Quincy Jones album, The Dude, which had a, a number of uh, huge hit songs from it, um, 100 Ways and Just Once. And at the time, I was openly questioning, OK, Quincy Jones didn't write these songs. He didn't sing these songs. He didn't perform these songs. It's like, what's the, what is it, like the Sword of Damocles or whatever, the thing where it's just like, oh, no, 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 it's, what is it? The axe thing, right? Like if you replace the blade on an axe and then you replace the wood, the handle on an axe, is it still the original axe? It's like, is it actually a Quincy Jones album if all he did was produce it? Um, the best songs on that were sung by James Ingram, I believe also written at least in part by James Ingram. His James Ingram's reward for that was that he finally got to put out the next album with his name on it, Quincy Jones still producing, and it was um, it was a massive success and uh, featured this really terrific uh, duet with uh, Michael McDonald, who eased his way, um, got the, the disco stink of the Doobie Brothers off of himself and... Uh, uh, you know, duetted on or sang solo some of the, the more respectable R&B hits of the 80s. Well, it's a doggone shame, but never too late for change. So if your love 
On July 1st, 1983, well, so I mentioned when I was talking about Metallica that uh, Metallica did such a great job of, of trimming the stylistic fat from the meat of metal and specifically thrash metal and pretty much after Kill 'Em All, you wouldn't find a bunch of dudes acting, you know, dressed sort of like Conan the Barbarian uh, on the cover of their album. Now, the problem is the band Man of War obviously did not get the memo that Metallica was about to completely destroy their lane in the metal world. You may or may not have seen pictures of Man of War from their classic era. Visually, it's somewhere between Conan the Barbarian and like if there was a Conan the Barbarian themed strip club in a strip mall in New Jersey. Um, the look, if it was ever cool, which I doubt, it has aged very, very poorly. But what of the music on uh, on July 1st? Yeah, they released their second studio album, Into Glory Ride, featuring this classic hit. And all self-righteous fools who lived and I think you get the idea. It, it, it was it was a big swing. Uh, I'm, I'm I'm led to believe Man of War, dressed in full Man of War Viking outfits, um, performed that song and others, and did a sit down interview with a, a children's TV host performing live in front of an audience of children on uh, in the early days of Nickelodeon. So if you're bored and anywhere uh, where you have access to YouTube, you might want to give that a look. Last, but certainly not least, I mean, real history. Madonna, you know, Madonna is one of the iconic icons of all iconry and Metallica are Metallica. But um, when you're talking about the real heavy, the real heavy hitters in the culture, um, you got to talk about Mario of Super Mario Brothers fame. So there's this album that came out, you know, there'd already been some um, <clears throat> Pac-Man Fever was already a big, like a, an actual huge hit song in, uh, in, in the late 70s. So there was some precedence for arcade characters getting turned into music. But in July of 83, a couple of people put their heads together. They went to Nintendo, and it would be such a different world nowadays. Can you imagine just going to Nintendo and saying, hey, we want to make an album about like Donkey Kong and, and that Mario guy. And um, and, we'll, and I think they gave him like, like 60,000 bucks to license it. And Nintendo neither asked for nor received any creative oversight they didn't get final say they said sure you want to give us sixty thousand bucks to make an album about the monkey gang great awesome just just send us the check so these three folks went off and made uh an album it, they had there there is no story if you've ever played donkey kong it's, there's no larger context to the the donkey kong character just throwing all the barrels at Mario on a construction site or whatever the hell that is. So these folks just made up a backstory. And here's the, I haven't listened to the music. I think we all know it's going to be terrible, but here's the truly historic part of this. They had to make up a character for Mario. And I think I've got this straight as you may have heard, you know, they had very, uh, 
limited ability to, to make um, the, you know, one of the reasons why so many of the characters in earlier games were non-human is because they just didn't have the pixels to accurately depict humans. So Mario from the earliest days is like, what? He's like a hat and a nose and a mustache. And I think they did that because that was like the kind of human face they were capable of, you know, they could make that would be recognizable to people, but that's all he was. He was a dude with a mustache trying to save a chick from this angry ape with an inexplicably inexhaustible supply of barrels. So these folks, let me let me credit them. Uh, Pat McBride and, oh no, I'm sorry, uh, Rena Jones, Leon Reeder, and Dana Walden put their heads together and made up um, a backstory for Donkey Kong and Mario. And folks, here's the real history on this. What you are about to hear is the first time the Mario character was ever depicted with an Italian accent, which, as we all know, is what he continued to have up until about a year ago when they decided to hire Chris Pratt to do his voice in the movie. So I leave you with this. I thank you, as always, for joining me. And I will remind you, there is so much more where this came from waiting for you now, open and free to the public at patreon.com slash Mike Tully. Hope to see you there. If not, I will see you here soon. It's a sure bet when we trust in Mario. M-A-R-I-O. Mario delivers.